And so, so quickly it became diet culture has racist roots. And that was the concession. Like we need to talk about both of these things in anti-diet spaces. And the way that we're going to do it is say that diet culture, you know, make it really like this tree analogy uh, and then just happens to have racist roots. Um, Whereas I see white supremacy as the tree. Um, It's what's sticking up out of the ground. It's what we can see. It's what is, you know, ruling and governing and decides you know, who is able to fit under its branches and, I, you know, shrinking ourselves via maybe that's the connection to diet culture there is one way people are trying to seek shelter under this, you know, umbrella, this tree of white supremacy. Hey team, and welcome to another episode of season two of Can I Have Another Snack podcast, where I'm asking my guests who or what they're nourishing right now and who or what is nourishing them. I'm Laura Thomas, an anti-diet registered nutritionist and author of the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. I can't wait to share today's conversation with dietitian and activist Jessica Wilson, who is also author of the forthcoming book, It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. I've linked to this book in the show notes because you need to go and pre-order it immediately. So in this conversation, you'll hear Jessica and I discuss her new book. We'll talk about some of the ideas that she presents in the book, like how the body stories and narratives of Black women are erased and silenced in conversations about health, wellness, and body positivity, Jessica tells us about why if we distill difficulties with food down to just the thin ideal, we end up missing a lot of the complexity of how Black women are told to be figuratively and literally smaller as a matter of survival. We talk about how intuitive eating and rejecting diet culture don't address systemic issues like anti-fatness and anti-blackness, and they perpetuate the idea that we need to find individualistic solutions to systemic and structural violence. We talk about how white supremacy and anti-blackness isn't at the root of diet culture, but how, in Jessica's words, it's the whole damn tree. We talk about Lizzo and respectability, resilience and toxic body positivity, and loads and loads more. I think I'm going to be unpacking this book for a long time to come, and I'm just so grateful to Jessica for writing it. And I think as a white person, I mean, my opinion doesn't really matter here, but I feel like it's important to sit with the discomfort and the critiques and reflect on the ways that I've perpetuated some of these harmful systems and narratives. And if you're a white person in this space, whether for personal or professional reasons, you need to get this book and also sit with that discomfort. So again, it's always been ours, rewriting the stories of Black women's bodies, and it's available to pre-order now and it will be out on the 7th of February. The pre-order links are in the show notes. It goes without saying that we talk about themes around anti-blackness and enslavement and anti-fatness. So if you're a black person or a fat person, please take care of yourself if you choose to listen to this conversation. All right, before we get to today's conversation with Jessica, I just want to share that I'm going to be running my Raising Embodied Eaters workshop again in February. It will be a 90-minute workshop completely online and you will be sent a copy of the recording afterwards to watch back. We'll talk about 
how kids' embodiment gets disrupted by diet culture and what this has to do with feeding. We'll discuss why we need to throw the rule book out of the window and let them have ice cream before broccoli and how we can help build trust in our kids to get what they need. I'll offer a framework that can help you feel more relaxed about mealtimes whilst encouraging kids to have autonomy. We'll talk about how providing supportive structure can encourage children to remain in touch with their internal cues for hunger, satisfaction, pleasure and fullness. And I'll cover how fussy eating develops and other developmental milestones as well as tools to help support our kids through them. We'll talk about why cutting out sugar and saying things like just another bite can undermine kids' instincts around food. And we'll cover how to talk about food and bodies without harming. You'll be asked to fill out a short questionnaire about your specific situation ahead of time. And I'll try to tailor the content to the audience as much as possible. You'll also get a copy of my Raising Embodied Eaters download. The workshop is suitable for grown-ups of kids of all ages, but best probably for kids under 12. Parents, whatever that means to your family, grandparents, teachers, nutrition professionals, and anyone else working with kids are more than welcome to join. It will be on Tuesday the 21st of February, also Pancake Day, at 7 o'clock and it's £15 to join. Full details and booking information is in the show notes and the transcript for this episode. And just before we get to Jessica, just a quick reminder that Can I Have Another Snack is a reader-supported publication and podcast. I'd love to bring you more deeply researched pieces like my piece on clean eating and kids from a couple of weeks ago, but it requires a significant investment in my time, plus the support of an editor. So if you are in a position to become a paid subscriber, then please consider it. It's £5 a month or £50 for the year. And if that's not accessible to you right now, you can email hello at laurasthomasphd.co.uk, putting the word snacks in the subject line, and we'll hook you up with a comp subscription. No questions asked. You don't need to justify yourself. Just send that email with snacks in the um, subject line, and we'll hook you up with a comp subscription. Okay, team, here is my conversation with Jessica Wilson. All right, Jessica. I'd love it if you could tell us who or what you are nourishing right now. That would be a big what. Laura, you're the first person that I get to talk to on a podcast and share that my book, It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies, will be out finally in 2023. So I am putting all of my energy and capacity into (laughs) taking that book across the finish line. They don't tell you when you sign that book deal that the publishing part, like the promoting, the marketing, all of that stuff is like more work than the the writing part and the editing part, which is also a lot. It is. And at least you know, like where you're going with that. You like know where the book ends, begins, and is in the middle. But then this nebulous, like what is happening afterwards—that is also more work. Yeah, I was not prepared. I recommend somebody write a book about what it's like to write a book. <laughs> I know we need that book. <laughs> yeah, it never ends. It never slows down. Is is the summary? But that's also a good sign. Like if they're keeping you busy with lots of marketing stuff, that's a good sign. <laughs> And for good reason, because I have been one of the very privileged people to read an advanced copy. And I'm just, I'm so excited about this book. I think, 
you've done such an amazing job of like dissecting these like really difficult to to digest and process ideas but you've woven it interwoven it with like humor and like historical context and pop culture references and and like it's just it's like a pleasure to read it even though it's like really difficult to to read so tell can you tell the audience what the book is about and what it is that you're trying to say through this book I think that there were two parts of it um in my career as a dietitian for 15 I don't know 17 years we'll say um and even before that the ways that we've talked about eating disorders the ways that we've talked about eating always centers like white folks experiences and the ways that eating disorders are supposed to present or how they present in very thin white girls and women. And like, I was, you know, trained with all of that, um, knowledge and it just was falling flat on its face when I was working with anybody else who wasn't thin white and a cis woman in my work. And I also didn't have any other black dietitian colleagues we only make up like three percent of the dietitian field and so I had no one to to talk to about it um like very lost reading Carolyn Costin's book which again you know it's not anything new it's just the same old centering of the same people mm-hmm. um so it wasn't like years or decades later that I realized that all of this needed to be in one place. I was having so many conversations, but how can we put all of this and give it context in a place and in a time where, you know, diet culture and intuitive eating are becoming so much to the lexicon and it still wasn't as complex as I really needed it to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of nuance missing from those conversations and a lot of people missing from those conversations in the book you detail you know, how there are a few, like, I mean, it's like a few old white dudes in the eating disorder field that have written mm-hmm. all the manuals, all the textbooks, all the protocols, all the mm-hmm. psychometric testing, everything mm-hmm. to center their ideas about who yeah. gets an eating disorder, how it presents and what the root causes are which mm-hmm. you completely obliterate in like the first couple of chapters. The idea that it's all about beauty, right? It's one that I for sure, you know, was trained in. It was everybody just wanting to be thin yeah. and thin for beauty's sake. And because we have very thin models, like that's why people want to shrink themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just to be prettier. And as we, you know, you and I have discussed and, you know, other communities as well. Uh, folks of color, particularly the black women in this book, mm-hmm. can find a lot of survival and safety by making themselves both uh, literally and figuratively smaller. So by shrinking, you know, in spaces where we're told we're too much, or even, you know, before we can be told we're too much, shrinking ourselves is one way to find that, you know, survival and white supremacy. And then also, of course, for fat folks mitigating anti-fatness um 
by, you know, starving oneself is one way to find a bit more peace, even if it is not, you know, both sustaining and nourishing, I guess, for them. Yeah, it's just, it's a survival mechanism. It's a way of living in a world that is openly hostile to you and yeah. trying to make that as, as easy as possible for yourself. And even then it's not easy. <laughs> it's still not easy. Right. Yeah. And some people hear, you know, this conversation and I've had comments on Instagram that, you know, say, well, it sounds like you're saying it's okay to have an eating disorder. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Oh my- <laughs> and I'm like, no, I understand why why you're saying that. I totally see why when I say I understand why you're starving yourself uh, to somebody who could be, you know, triggered to hear, I approve of you having an eating disorder. But yeah, that that's not what is going on. That's a real red herring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the com- the compassion, the understanding. Um, and then also like eating re- disorder recovery is not going to make the things that they are, you know, somewhat solving by becoming smaller. They're not going to make those things go like magically go away. So how do we have a really, really hard conversation that talks about not just eating intuitively and recovering, but like the harms of society. Yeah. You're not saying that restriction, deprivation, and trying to micromanage everything that you eat and trying to shrink your body Mm -hmm. isn't unpleasant. (laughs) You're saying, you're not saying it's not. Or differently harmful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's, it's one way of, of, of trying to survive in, in a world that's really unsafe. And what you're saying is like, these are the options available mm-hmm. to some people. Mm-hmm. The the options yeah. are try and reform, conform through restriction and deprivation, and uh, that, you know through effectively self harm, or endure the you know more microaggressions or overt aggression. Yeah. Um, because you you're even farther from the white yeah. ideal. Is that like yeah. and what society finds acceptable? There is no easy path under white supremacy mm-hmm. for those whose bodies don't align with what, you know, Puritan culture had in mind and that we continue to value as a, as a society. So there really is no easy path forward. And all of us are really trying to do the best we can. And I think you you kind of touched on this as well, but you you talk about um in the book that you know rejecting diet culture and embracing anti-diet intuitive eating approaches to eating is not the one it's it's not going to save us that these are oversimplifications of you know what what needs to happen, what needs to change. Do you want to kind of touch on that a little bit more and and explain why, why you think that is? I think you teed it up really nicely when we talked about the safety and survival that people can find in shrinking themselves, intuitive eating in all of its, you know, forms, fashions and principles, like is not going to make anti-fatness or anti-blackness 
go away. So even if I, you know, am open to start eating again, if I've been restricting and in deprivation and I want to embrace intuitive eating, the reasons that I had shrunk myself initially, like will arise and intuitive eating is not Mm -hmm. going to be like that solution. I will still be experiencing the other things. Again, also it's an individual solution to like a societal problem. And I often find that, you know, me asking you, Laura, to participate in these like rituals, these um, principles, you know, really puts the onus on you as a person that needs to solve a problem that you did not create. Mm. And as a clinician, you know, that that doesn't read well to me. And I also um, find that I want people to think less about food because, mm-hmm. you know, as, you know, as we deprive ourselves, the amount of times and amount of time spent thinking about food, like goes up exponentially. And so I don't like to really organize people's existence around, you know, always thinking about their food, mm-hmm. but also not having like specifics as a, as a field in the book I talk about talking to like three of my white, like eating disorder specialist, um, yeah. dietitian friends. And I said, how are they talking about intuitive eating these days? And I say that all, you know, three of them, you know, took their hands like butterfly wings across their chest and like fluttered them a bit. That's how you'll know if you're eating intuitively was the the message. And I was like, what is, what does that mean? What are we doing as a field? If like a solution (laughs) to a societal problem involves both like rigidity and fluttering hands, it's just, it's not the solution we need to society. Look, you know that I (laughs) have been an advocate of intuitive being have been, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) I've talked a lot about it. I've written two fucking books about intuitive eating but like as I read that part of your book I like threw up in my mouth a little bit I was like not not actually (laughs) (laughs) um but like I was just like that's gross that (laughs) it was Hmm. really upsetting to read that that's what it's been reduced down to is just like this like ethereal feeling (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's what intuitive eating when is. you know you'll know <laughs> like, no and that's fucked that's, up that's it's really fucked up and I'm kind of you know becoming more and more aware of how um sort of evangelical people are about intuitive eating and I hope that that's like something that I've kind of gotten across in my books is that if we are you know, if if you are trying to practice intuitive eating to the letter and you're so inflexible mm-hmm. in those principles, like that's a diet and that you're just recreating, reproducing mm-hmm. the same ways of thinking and patterns of, of being as, as, as in a diet. So what we're not actually achieving anything. And like you, like the goal is, is to not think that much about food apart from like, okay, mm-hmm. I need to eat something what do I have available to me or do I need to Mm -hmm. order something in? (laughs) Yeah. Do I have enough groceries? Have I packed a snack? (laughs) It's really important. Like it's very, very important to bring snacks. But yeah, um, in the religiosity, I fully 
agree and and see the, the connection again with the idea that we should be only eating for biological reasons is another way the religiosity flows in there because you know i made the connection my boss made the connection between that and the like only have sex for procreation um and just like where these like deny yourself pleasure deny yourself you know so many things unless it's in a religious you know context and then you're able to have sex or then you're able to enjoy food if it's only for biological reasons so never and like have pleasure with like food or sex so yeah i definitely see the evangelism and religiosity for sure it is and there's also just like this i mean i was literally shoving toffee in my mouth as i was reading that section like (laughs) which is just funny but yeah there is this distortion and I think that the way that that intuitive eating is is talked about and how it's been popularized and, and this because it's it's come from the intuitive eating book is as you say, this denial of pleasure, this um denial of our appetite, and the fact that we eat outside of these very like narrow, very specific parameters, and that it like it's fine if you like are passing a shop (laughs) window like a bakery and you see something and you're like that looks good I want to eat that like yeah to to just reduce hunger down to or reduce eating down to only only eating when you're hungry is is ludicrous but it's it's also really harmful because you know I've I've been in the room with clients who are like but I you know when do I eat and like Mm -hmm. just the mental acrobatics of it all is a lot there's yeah there's this other thing that I've seen happening with intuitive eating that makes me so deeply uncomfortable is how it's just like become this like really it's like girl boss feminism but for food Mm. do you know what I mean like more no I love this where's this going I think I maybe got this idea from Toy Smith who I don't know if you if you know Toy, a black woman who she talks a lot about capitalism and the effects of capitalism on our lives, and okay. she has a lot of great things to say. But she talks about like the commodification of wisdom that is just innate to humans, oh, right? Oh yes, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's something that we we kind of mm-hmm. like know in our bodies and how like white women in particular sort of repackage this and try and sell it back Mm -hmm. to you at a premium Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like (laughs) that's what I feel like intuitive eating has become and I see this a lot happening with child feeding right like we're going way off topic we will come back to your book I promise it's fine like like the weaning industrial complex oh right yeah I don't need to take a 200 pound like course to to teach my child how to eat like we've been humans have been doing that since the beginning mm-hmm. of time right mm-hmm. and like what the fuck what am I paying you to tell me how to like cut up a piece of food like that's it, like innate knowledge and wisdom mm-hmm. like that that we have as humans and it should be freely available to everyone right like yeah Hmm. The weaning industrial complex. I love. Don't get me started because I have a lot of feelings about it, Jessica. (laughs) But it's that kind of you know, like like eating is something so fundamental and so in you know inherent to our existence. 
mm-hmm. that why are we paying to learn how to do that? Definitely. Okay. I've gone way off, off piece here, but let's, let's bring it back to the book. And, and I think we've kind of like touched on this a little bit in different ways, but I, I want to ask you a bit more directly, like you've talked a lot about this on social media as well. And in fact, you gave a really, I think, helpful analogy that I'll ask you to share in just a second. But okay, since the sort of social reckoning that wasn't in 2020 (laughs) people it's become cool it's become trendy in the anti-diet haze space Mm -hmm. to talk about how anti-blackness and white supremacy are at the root of diet culture right let it rip jessica (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's see. I'm not sure, like chicken or the egg. I don't know if you have that expression in the UK or not. We do. Um, <laughs> that one, okay. tr- that one translates. Okay. I'm not sure which one came first. Cause, uh, there was a, it was a very short period of, uh, time during which people all of a sudden, you know, in, you know, eating disorder community and dietitian community, um, who were like talking about diet culture, like every other, you know, sentence. And then all of a sudden in 2020, um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, people are talking about race in ways that have not mm-hmm. been done before. And so it was like this, how do we like squeeze in this very important conversation about racism into this conversation as a field that we've already been having. And mm-hmm. so what, you know, Black Lives Matter, what Black folks, what our Black colleagues like me and Alicia McCullough, you know, we're talking about bodies and the harm that white supremacy has caused for mm-hmm. ever. Um, and anti-diet spaces, we're talking about the harms of dieting forever. I see that the origins of white supremacy, you know, are really what are impacting, like directly impacting both anti-fatness and anti-blackness in Mm -hmm. the U.S. at least. Mm -hmm. And so, so quickly it became diet culture has racist roots. And that was the concession. Like we need to talk about both of these things in anti-diet spaces. And the way that we're going to do it is say that diet culture, you know, make it really like this tree analogy uh, and then just happens to have racist roots. Um, Whereas I see white supremacy as the tree. um, It's what's sticking up out of the ground is what we can see. It's what is, you know, ruling and governing and decides you know, who is able to fit under its branches and, I, you know, shrinking ourselves via maybe that's the connection to diet culture there is one way people are trying to seek shelter under this, you know, umbrella, mm. this tree of white supremacy. Mm. And you give some examples in your book, and I think that they're really helpful for illustrating what you mean, because and I'm speaking for myself here, yeah. but like when it it takes a long time to get your head around diet culture as a concept anyway, Mm -hmm. right? When you've Mm -hmm. been coming from like the, the, the weight normative paradigm that you and I were both trained in. Right. So like that, it's kind of like a head fuck just to even get your head around that to begin with, but then Mm -hmm. to take it to the next level, which actually this isn't even diet culture. This is something else entirely. Mm -hmm. Right. 
like, and and maybe this is just me <laughs> being like, this is my ignorance or my privilege showing, but it's taken me a while, even after reading like Fearing the Black Body and reading mm-hmm. Deshaun's work to like mm-hmm. get to this point. So I'm just wondering like if some examples, they, they were helpful for me reading them in your book. So I'm just wondering if it'd be helpful in other people's book, um, in other people's books, what am I saying? Um, <laughs> for other people to, to illustrate them. for other people. Well, I think people might love to hear the ones that resonated with you, you know, because they probably share a lot of your experiences. I think, I think both the stories of Mia and Lexi okay. were really illustrative. Um, okay. So I, I don't know which one would you like to, to tell? <laughs> We can talk about Lexi since she's now, you know, a U.S. transplant into the yeah, UK. Yeah, she's here. So in yeah. I feel like the I need to like call her up and be like, "Hey, should we yeah. grab a coffee?" Absolutely. <laughs> maybe she could be on your podcast. I'm sure she could. I know she's been on your podcast, and I need to go back and listen to that. But yeah, we should yeah. get her on the podcast. Yeah. So gymnast from age three, um, and really enjoy doing all of the gymnastics events. So there's floor, there's the uneven bars, there's beam, and then there's floor. And within the gymnastics community, the idea is that the beam, balance beam, and the uneven bars are like the elegant events. Mm -hmm. And inherently in gymnastics, you know, uh, only the white gymnasts are able to be elegant. Any and all black gym- gymnasts are assumed to be more muscular, more powerful, and they're going to be great on the floor and great on the vault. And Lexi wanted to do all of the events and was good at them. Uh, but, you know, saw that the thinner, whiter girls were getting higher scores. So being an athlete and very driven, she's like, I know how to be thinner and get, you know, therefore get better scores. So just, you know, started participating, you know in deprivation in restriction in laxative use um in the like cleansing cayenne lemon water situation mm-hmm. and eventually purging but there was no like she was never like i want to feel better about my body you know she was never fat she just wanted to be metaphorically and physically smaller to be more palatable to the judges, predominantly white judges who were judging her. She was never like, you know, I'm worried about the thin ideal. It just wasn't about the same stuff, you know, that we are told about diet culture and what diet culture means. Um, It just wasn't that. Yeah. So yeah, in the, in the eating disorder literature, all we're ever offered is, you know, people are trying to shrink their bodies because it brings them in closer proximity to the thin ideal and that's you know, the apex of human <laughs> being like that's what right. I'll be aiming for it's because which, they feel bad about their bodies yeah which we we do get that message to an extent but what you're saying mm-hmm. is it's more than that it's a lot deeper than that it's a lot more harmful than that it's and it's rooted in the the origins of the american well America as a country and chattels Mm -hmm. slavery and enslavement um, of black people and and it goes all the way back to that Mm -hmm. and the the like we were saying at the beginning the safety that is afforded to people 
who who have closer proximity to whiteness. Is that like a fair summary? Yeah, I think that you helped me out uh, realizing that I had just jumped in with Lexi and gymnasts and not taking it back to enslavement um, hundreds of years ago, right? So the depiction of Black women then, you know, as strong, as powerful, Mm -hmm. basically because they were laborers either, you know, out in the field or in the house, but just the constant valuation of Black women for their labor um, continues today. And so, yeah, Black gymnasts are used for their power and their strength in their Mm -hmm. events. And so, like, it's been hundreds of years, but the narratives of Black women are still there and they're ones that we did not ask for. Mm -hmm. So that's how we say, you know, the body narratives have always been written by white supremacy in a way that Black women will never, you know, Mm -hmm. have access to, you know, a validating body story unless Mm -hmm. it's rewritten. And what you just said there about um you know this the story of of black women's bodies being about power being about strength that was again if we think think of it in historical terms because they had no choice right that was the literally oh, yeah. the they only were put way. to work but in the book you kind of bring this into a modern context as well which um mm-hmm. And, and you talk about it through the lens of um, resilience. And, and so if it's okay, I want to just read a short passage um, yeah. from the book. And so you say, Black women often take on the false idea that we have superhuman strength and resilience. In the meantime, sacrificing our physical and mental health, trying to make ourselves fit into a society that will never accept us. This replicates centuries of lacking body autonomy for Black women, of being denied agency in how we tend to our bodies. Yeah. And I think like this really like who hit a nerve for me, Um, Hmm. not hit a nerve in like a negative way, but it like, sure, (laughs) it it made an impression. It made an impression. Mm -hmm. I really had to like think about it. Um, And so sort of. I mean, did you want to speak to this point? Any- yeah, what stu- stood out to me and then I was able to bring up at other times with the autonomy um, here and how conforming indeed can bring back some of what has been lost in people's writing our own stories, but at what cost, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it indeed, it is hard. It's hard to, it was hard to write it's hard to listen to, but again, knowing it's important, which I think at the beginning you'd said that I, you know, had wrapped in some uh, humor, often dry humor, pop culture, um, a lot of, you know, really personal stories Mm -hmm. so that folks could, you know, have some balance and really get to the end of the the book rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, just deciding it's hard and not finishing. Mm Yeah. Yeah. What did the passage or what stuck out to you in the in the passage? Well, I think it was kind of more, I guess I want to bring it back to another part of the this same chapter where you're talking about resilience. And you sort of, without like making a song and dance about it, you, you kind of differentiate between resilience that is embodied and innate and inherent versus resilience that is 
performed as an act of survival, you know, through um, through the through autonomy being forcibly removed, violently and forcibly removed, and. Mm-hmm. I think that there, like, it just made me think about how there is a lot of stereotyping about Black women being strong and, um, you know, having to, Mm -hmm. like, as you say in the book, like, literally and figuratively having to clean up everybody else's mess Mm -hmm. um, and carrying, like, so much for the rest of us. And, um, so I, I suppose it it brought me back to just like I just felt so like I just felt really sad, like really really mm-hmm. sad that that's mm-hmm. um, you know I was thinking about some of my black my friends who are black women and um, just yeah how this it, it was just really upsetting to 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 think about just everything that's expected of black women and everything that they're carrying. But then there was also this most this more kind of optimistic, hopeful piece in like resilience that's embodied, that's like innate, that's just that that's something that um, you know is developed through community and through mm-hmm. um, black joy and some of the things that you go on to you know some of the more like yeah. uplifting things that you talk about in the book. So yeah. Did you mean to like draw that distinction between the two pieces or is that just, am I reading? I love how, (laughs) no, which is great because I have more, um, yeah, language. That's super helpful and great reflection. Um, I do, I think in that chapter talking about like my needing, like I needed to have been performing resilience in Mm. a particular situation and I just couldn't. And, you know, therefore I was then you know, disposable to the organization at the time. Um, Because as you know, you know, folks with chronic illnesses and other things, like there is just a max. And Mm -hmm. at some point, like my body just can't fulfill the demands of society for me to, you know, put everything else uh, Mm -hmm. before myself, et cetera. Sometimes I actually have to put, yeah, myself first. So yeah, not being able to do that performance is, you know, both like considered and ingrained as a failure for Mm. me, you know, and I assume other black women, like we are known for our strength, you know, you can always rely on us. Um, And when, you know, we cannot be relied upon for black girl magic, like that's devastating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then the other, yes, the innate resilience or the, hmm. I wouldn't say tools gained through community, but maybe that maybe it is a friend of mine called joy as a weapon, the way I was writing about it as like a way to weaponize the mm. um, assumptions made about us and our bodies. And I loved that. Mm. So yes, resilience in two different ways. Okay. So I mentioned that you weave in some most excellent pop culture references and a piece that I really enjoyed reading was your thoughts on Lizzo and mm-hmm. respectability and all the shit that went down <laughs> around about that yeah. so summarize what you talk about in that chapter 
I start the chapter by talking about Lizzo's uh, decision to eat smoothies that she made at home, uh, apples and peanut butter, protein bars, tea, pickles, something pickles. Yeah. So it was smoothies and those snacks for 10 days. And she had said, you know, to us, 2020 had been a really shitty year and, Mm -hmm. you know, her stomach was real fucked up. And so, you know, she decided to go on what she called a smoothie detox and the internet lost its mind. It was like one, it's like you wake up to like an actual news story on social media, but this was like Lizzo is, is drinking smoothies was the actual news story. It was such a like oh. slow news day when you think about it, but like yeah, the internet erupted. <laughs> yeah, that's actually probably true. Uh, it was in the period between Thanksgiving and, and New Year's. Maybe. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the Internet had big thoughts. And it was one of those times where I was able to see those who were, you know, triggered um, and probably weren't doing so well in their mm-hmm. own, you know, mental health and recovery. Mm-hmm. They got very, very triggered. One particularly, um, Jamila Jamil, who's over oh yeah yeah, uh, yeah. UK and, and US yeah posted her own story of like engaging in some sort of like detox situation oh is and that who it was up- I was reading your book and I was like <laughs> come on you coward name her <laughs> well <laughs> uh, you did yes so <laughs> but you did on the podcast she's, <laughs> she, yeah she's mentioned ambiguously um <clears throat> but yes a whole like cautionary tale of I almost died doing a cleanse don't do cleanses um and you know it was very clear for her, uh Jamila Jamil that you know she had done so in the context of her eating disorder mm-hmm. in order to lose weight and I was like but wait did Lizzo say anything about wanting to lose weight like I didn't I didn't catch that like I went back um saw what she was eating there were solid foods like it was like portrayed as like this weird like cleansy I don't know what like the assumptions made about cleanses are but there's like actual food there I was watching it it may have may have not been you know a meal amount of food, but like, I still didn't have anything to say to somebody who's just eating food on a regular basis. Well, um, and the thing is, like, I think this is where you're going yeah. anyway, but <laughs> it's none of our fucking business, right? Is yeah. ultimately like, if you were, her, if you were her dietitian, you'd probably have some things to say to her, but you're not. And neither am I. So, <laughs> Yeah. And right. And it probably even wouldn't like 10 days of whatever it is that you're doing. It's going to be like, there's, there's not much that would happen in 10 days that you wouldn't be just very hungry about and need to, you know, I'm um, just going to say, if you are in active eating disorder recovery, please do not do this. Like just to cover our backs, <laughs> but like just for, for <laughs> people who are like generally fine, <laughs> it's not going to do any harm for that length of time it's not going to feel great but it's not going to yeah I might end up hungry at the end of 10 days is is like what I envisioned was going to happen but yeah the people who had like big thoughts and big feelings I could definitely see like them like their emotional responses um coming from like not ever, you know, wanting to see somebody go on a cleanse, but not only anybody go on a cleanse, but Lizzo. Lizzo, mm-hmm. a fat black woman who takes up both literal, you know, metaphorical and 
actual space, um, who everybody who would, you know, we looked up to Lizzo for her, you know, magical ability to actually love her fat body when, you know, everybody in America and Western society tells fat black women that, you know, that they should be ashamed of their bodies. Lizzo, you know, was, you know, a like one person everyone could point to to feel good about their own bodies. Like all of a sudden, yeah, Lizzo would became this like body positivity mammy for mm-hmm. a lot of people, something she had never asked for. Yeah. She is a performer, a musician, a flautist. And she, I assume, did not set out to, you know, have people put things onto her body that she did not ask for. Mm-hmm. She's not there for anybody but herself. And so by Smoothie Gate, like people are devastated. They, you know, are practicing self-care. They're talking to their therapist about this thing that Lizzo did to them. <laughs> like it was Yeah, it was people were not... taking it as a personal betrayal, weren't they? Yes. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And yep. Posting like this is what you can do for self-care during this tough time. And all along, like Lizzo said nothing about wanting to lose weight. And never did. It, and it kind of it goes back to what we were talking about before around resilience and and black women like people putting everything on black women that they oh do yeah. not ask to carry they don't mm-hmm. ask to carry all your trauma responses <laughs> and, right and be your poster child for body positivity when mm-hmm. y- you've never claimed that for yourself right it really again just like you said is indicative of just something else that goes on like subconsciously for all of us and the ways that yes black women are meant to carry a lot more than just our own body stories and experiences and i think it's kind of this like and this is part of what you're saying in in the book and i'm kind of extrapolating a little bit here but the you know body positivity as it was originally conceived came out of the fat liberation movement which was as we are we all know now started by fat black jewish and queer folks but it's become this depoliticized yeah. movement that has That's been true co-opted and taken over by as you say in the book like it could you know you've got like I don't know shapewear companies using hashtag body positive (laughs) (laughs) and like whatever diet companies and yeah Mm -hmm. like using that moniker and then just the kind of the the expectations and the pressures that come with you know, that, that label that you should love yourself and mm. that there's like, there's this great quote that I think you use for, is it Nicole Byers that, that talks about yeah. how, like, what, why do we need a name for just like yep. existing in our bodies? Right. To, for not hating them. I think for not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't need a name. Yeah. A name for not hating a part. She's, I think she says a part of our bodies because life's already hard. Like, mm-hmm. why do we? Yeah. But yeah, that's she also doesn't identify, yes, as body positive because of that reason. Because, yeah, having a name for just not hating yourself seems wild. Yeah. It, it really yeah. is when you stop to think about it in, in those terms. And 
And like at the same time, you know, as as some of the folks that you spoke to for the book sort of say like, well, it was a gateway to yeah. fat liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the problem is that like 90% of the people, more than that, that engage in body positivity don't go any further. And then it mm-hmm. becomes this like neoliberal self-improvement project. Yeah. And it that actually was what uh, made me think about that earlier. You said like wasn't became less political, but I feel like people think that body politics like in this in just body positivity is like political if you have no politics like if you're not politically engaged like this can seem so radical to you even though it means nothing it doesn't stand for anything you know so it's like it's like uh composting as a politic but like body politics (laughs) from you know a politic from body positivity when it doesn't stand for anything yes neoliberalism and just this like making something out of nothing really yeah, this individualistic self-care you know problem that it's up to you to solve when mm-hmm. like as we've discussed the the roots are social and systemic the issues are the right. issues are social and systemic yeah yeah but just feel better about your body that's that's the goal it's all just yeah. a big distraction tactic though isn't it like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes Good point. Always is. Always, like it's all of these systems. When we, when we strip them to the bare bones, are just to keep us, you know, yeah, distracted to keep us separated to keep us like out of community with each other. Because if we actually start to talk to each other about these things, we'll fucking Mm -hmm. revolt, and um, the ruling class don't want that. So. That doesn't serve capitalism Very if much. we revolt. <laughs> so yeah, to keep us anxious, to keep us buying and spending money mm-hmm. on whatever the next beauty industrial complex situation has going for us. Yeah, and just spend, yeah. spending money on to keep stuff us we in don't scarcity. Need. Yeah, not doing enough, don't have enough, and feeling like the only way to, out of that is through dominion of other people. Mm-hmm. On that note. On that fun note. <laughs> Jessica, I would love to know, in amongst all of the media circus and just general chaos that is publishing a book, who or what is nourishing you right now? I have been enjoying two different podcasts, Vibe Check from three gay black guys that you know talk about what's keeping their vibes right politics and pop culture Mm -hmm. and I really love the banter between them it's smart it's sassy another by Brittany Luce it's been a minute also and as a NPR podcast and I don't know what folks thought the show was going to be but it is 100% black 100% black women focused and I love it and then I would say 2023, I'm really hoping to become a better baker. And so I've just been telling people <laughs> that I am. Uh, somebody was planning an event and I said, I'm a baker. Uh, what can I bring? You know, I'm just throwing that out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I I'll love bring it. I just love it this. Is. Like, <laughs> fake it till yeah. you make it. And- <laughs> exactly. I'm a baker. What can, what can I bring you? And I mean, I'll still 
bring it, uh, whether or not it will be edible or <laughs> beautiful. It's something else entirely. But you know what? I'm a baker. So what are you baking specifically? What have you been baking? I think my next uh, baking attempt will be to construct something. I didn't get to do any like gingerbread construction mm. situations. So I might find like a castle um, and make mm. one. <laughs> I this know. ambitious. I was expecting you to say some like, you wouldn't know what this is in, in the States, but like Victoria sponge cake or like something really basic. Oh, but no, you're like going at those. <laughs> yes. Um, to make it. I like glitter a lot too. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to decorate a castle with glitter. That's I want to mm-hmm. see pictures of that one. That's uh, I'm sure you'll put it on, I'll work you'll on, put it. It on social media. Right. Um, yes. I still have Instagram d- deleted at the moment. I need to, <laughs> I, I reinstalled it on my phone yesterday to check a message. Um, mm-hmm. And that I like immediately deleted it again. I was like, I'm not ready for this. I can't do it yet. Um, but yeah, okay. So baking is keeping you afloat and so are these podcasts. I think the vibe check one, I just came across that the other day because I think Samantha um Irby like name dropped that in in her okay. newsletter the other day. I think I think it's that one, but um okay, so I don't know if I've maybe confused you by asking you that question because at the end of every episode, I always ask what you are snacking on right now. Oh, okay. Is, is you like is your recommendation thing? Did you just tell me your snacks? <laughs> yes, the things that, that I would recommend. Your recommendations. Yeah. Okay. So let's yeah, go back. I... Wait. First of all, I'll tell you my snacks, and then I'll ask you what's nourishing you. I love this. Okay. Just, yeah. We're just flipping, reversing it here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my snack is a literal snacks. That my brother just sent me a huge box of shit from Trader Joe's, which mm-hmm. I know is not like exciting yeah, to you, Joe's. but like, but we they don't have you. that here. It is and a primary point of conversation when I'm over there. <laughs> it, I just, yes. okay. I need to compose myself because I'm very excited about this box of sta- of snacks. Okay. Like the, mm-hmm. he sent me the, the Thai chili lime cashews. Mm-hmm. Yes, the there's like some chocolate coconut granola. There are like cookies in there. There are okay. This isn't from Trader Joe's, but there are birthday cake Oreos, which are yes. Oh my god, you don't understand. Uh-huh. They have them here. <laughs> They're not the same, and they cost like ten pounds for a packet. I'm not mm. paying ten pounds for Oreos. That's ridiculous. No. Um, but I will get my brother to ship them all the way from America. <laughs> um on his dollar and um what else is in there oh like everything but the bagel seasoning the everything but the bagel nuts the Mm -hmm. like there's so much stuff in there I'm really oh that there's like um peanut butter stuffed pretzels yep that was gonna be the next one I asked you about Mm -hmm. there's so much cool stuff in there I'm very excited so yeah my thing is Trader Joe's snacks (laughs) Absolutely. that you get your brother if to he, ship <laughs> yeah if he didn't send you cookie butter um highly recommend you put that on the next list I think I did ask him for that and I haven't seen it there so yeah there's gonna have to be a, a follow-up but yes oh my god <laughs> and they're not bars they're really good as well and they're like cheap compared to yeah 
everywhere else. Yeah. Everything at Trader Joe's is relatively cheap. So that's, I'm very excited to go and dig into that package. I literally got it right before we started recording. So it was excellent. Yeah. And if anyone else wants to send me a care package from the States, anyone in the <laughs> from audience. Trader Joe's specifically, <laughs> just like, just go in, do supermarket sweep and send it to mm-hmm. me. Um, okay. So now we will go back and I will ask you who or what is nourishing you right now? Like what is keeping you afloat? <laughs> Hmm. Like how long is this list? It's like, is it the acknowledgements in my book right now? That seems. <laughs> hmm. It can just be like, it can be your spouse or your dogs or like. Yeah. I'm, I know. I'm like, well, definitely. <laughs> There's just so many dogs. <laughs> I know. 100% dogs. Um, I will say Amy who made a meal of tater tots that's something else that I find is not as popular over on your we side. don't have them but I also had like a bad hangover experience with tater tots so <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> a meal of tater tots and other things um like layered on top but also a signature cocktail for me and my book that had oh let's see it was gin and prosecco and marionberry and rosemary Ooh. it was very sweet so i was in that specifically in that moment of getting together and like recognizing that this book is you know being birthed and is coming out that was a very special moment so i will hold on to that one for a bit oh i love that since we're talking about the book do you want to share the name and like i will link in the show notes obviously to where people can get it but do you want to share the name of the book and then where people can find out more about you and your work. Sure. The title is It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. And there is a UK Amazon link for it now. You can find more about the book on my personal website, jessicawilsonmsrd.com. Instagram has tons about the book and about washing legs. I'm over at jessicawilson.msrd um, at Instagram and jessicawilsonrd on Twitter. But most of the fun, the joy, and the silliness is, is over on Instagram. Thank you so much, Jessica. I will put all the links to where to find you and how to get a hold of the book in the UK and the US in the show notes for this episode so people can check it out. And congratulations on birthing a book into the world. It's so exciting and I can't wait for people to get it into their hands. Thanks so much, Laura. This is really fun. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another Snack? If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review in your podcast player and head over to laurathomas.substack.com for the full transcript of this conversation plus links we discussed in the episode and how you can find out more about this week's guest. While you're over there, consider signing up for either a free or paid subscription to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter, where I'm exploring topics around bodies, identity, and appetite, especially as it relates to parenting. Although it's totally cool if you're not a parent, you're welcome to. We're building a really awesome community of cool, creative, and smart people who are committed to ending the tyranny of body shame and intergenerational transmission of disordered eating. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas, edited by Julie Kelly. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Pricer, and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. 
And lastly, Fiona Bray keeps me on track and makes sure this episode gets out every week. This episode wouldn't be possible without your support. So thank you for being here and valuing my work and I'll catch you next week.